This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It can be found in the Bibles in your rows on page 947, or it's printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. A couple weeks ago, we moved into a new house for us just down the street. And apparently, since moving uh, is not exciting enough, we thought, hey, let's have the dog have surgery as well. So um, she had a couple of tumors that needed fixing. Um, And so we uh, got up four days after we moved in. We get up, we load the dog in the car, and Mika, our oldest, is with me. Um, And so we, we drive over to the vet. And as we're getting out of the car... Uh, you know, struggling with the dog, I hit the button to have the, the trunk thing kind of close. So Mika walks around the back of the car and uh, hits, it hits her in the head. So she comes around the side of the car, her hands are over her face, uh, and then she takes her hands away and there's blood pouring down her face. Maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but I swore, I was like, oh, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and the vet tech that had come out to meet us, we both just kind of stood there stunned, like, what do we do? Uh, and so then the vet took her inside and um, got us started. And I, told Mika she now has the distinction of being our only child to be cared for by a veterinarian. Uh, <laughs> she did not find that particularly funny. Um, but so we, you know, the vet tech gets the bleeding stopped and we get the dog taken care of. And we walk out to the car and I had to call Cheryl uh, because I couldn't drive. I was this close to passing out. Um, and I could just hear Mika rolling her eyes at how pathetic I am. I can't even handle this situation. So I had to lay the seat back in the car. Uh, my flesh is gray. I'm sweating. You know, and I had to lay there for a few minutes. Finally, was able to pull it back together. In fact, to drive her to the ER and get, have the doc get her patched up. And I was thinking about this. Uh, this week, because of this series of sermons we're starting um, called Remembering. As you can probably tell, I don't deal well with blood or medical emergencies. Even that song we just sang, Peel Back Our Ribs Again, it makes me a little queasy. Yeah, even as we're singing it. You know, and dismemberment, right, is an emergency. If you're walking along and you come across a valley of bones or a severed limb in the park, right, you would realize something has gone terribly wrong. The Apostle Paul calls his church a body. And if the church is a body made up of many members, then this past year and a half has been kind of a dismemberment. Streaming online worship services, social distancing, shutdowns, quarantines. So we're taking these next couple of months to try and remember, taking the dry bones image from Ezekiel 37, asking, can these dismembered dry bones live again, walking through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman church, chapters 12 through 16. This section of Romans is Paul's longest treatment in the Bible of how the community of Christians ought to live out their faith. So Paul's answering the question, how do we live this out? How, do, how does our belief affect how we live? 
So this morning we start with Romans 12, just two verses that talk about worship, what it means to offer ourselves to God. So let's hit it. We begin with kind of a turn. We're jumping in here midstream, right? Picking up in chapter 12. And the first thing we see there in, in verse one is the word therefore. Now you may have had a, a cheesy professor, English teacher, or Bible study leader tell you the little phrase that when you come across this word, you say, what's the therefore, therefore? Kind of lame, but it's true, right? You have to ask, what's it there for? Because it's referring to something that has come before. So immediately before this, in chapter 11, we read verses 33 to 36. You can turn there if you've got your Bibles open. It's just a brief little doxology, a little section of praise. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We read, therefore, dear brothers, I appeal to you. All right, so what is, the, what is Paul praising God for? Well, for all that he has just expounded on the previous 11 chapters. One commentator notes that Paul is about to give an outline of Christian living chapters 12 and following, that should issue from a knowledge of and trust in the gospel that he has been explaining for the previous 11 chapters. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 are a summary of the whole of Christian life. Therefore, Paul says, because of all the stuff that I've been saying leading up to this, because of that, I urge you by the mercies of God. Now, notice it's not the mercy of God, but the mercies, that is all of God's goodness and all of his working. The many and varied manifestations of his mercy. That is all the ways that God's been good to his people, to us. Therefore, Paul says, brothers and sisters, in view of all God's mercy. Now, if we, if we read Romans 12 through 16 without paying attention to this, therefore, and keep in mind all of God's mercies, all of chapters 1 through 12, we're likely to slip into moralism or thinking that we can earn our way into the kingdom by following these instructions. But so we move forward through Romans 12 through 16 in view of all of God's mercies. What does Paul urge them to do with God's mercies in mind? Well, he urges them to present themselves, their bodies, as a living sacrifice. Now, Paul's intentionally dropping some liturgical temple language here. He says, present or offer yourself. That's sacrifice language. So those familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and the ways of the temple would understand this illusion. And he says, offer yourselves as what? As a sacrifice. Again, this is temple language. And then the kind of sacrifice, the kind of offering we are to be, is to be holy, acceptable, and pleasing. You know, in the temple system, the, the sacrifices were to be the best of the flock, not the leftovers. So to be holy is to be set apart for a special purpose. Think of like the plates or the things you would break out for a holiday dinner or something like that, the stuff that's set apart for a special purpose. All that is to say, Paul's using familiar temple language here to describe the kind of living sacrifices that we are to be. Also note that Paul urges his hearers to offer their bodies. He's talking about their physical, corporeal bodies, and this was almost certainly calculated to shock his listeners. There was a prevailing mindset, a stream of thought among the Greeks that the body was a cage to be escaped, a bag of bones. Uh, the body was, to be, was thought to be kind of irrelevant, right? What mattered was the, the soul, the spirit, the heart. 
But Paul's reminding them that we humans are embodied creatures, not just brains on a stick, as James Smith likes to say. The body is a war zone for sin and temptation, the front lines, so to say. And we know this, right? We've experienced this. When we're tired, we're more likely to indulge in that particular sin that plagues us, whether that's eating the snacks that we vowed not to eat or looking at the stuff on the computer that we vowed not to look at or whatever it is. Our bodies are not irrelevant or side players, but very much involved in our discipleship. So temple language. We offer our bodies. Our bodies as what? He says as a living sacrifice, which is kind of a weird thing to say, right? I mean, because a sacrifice involves a killing. So some kind of a living killing, a living dying. You know, I wonder if, if Paul's riffing off of Jesus' teaching that if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to live, you've got to die. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow. So three things we note about a living sacrifice. First is that it's total. Body, soul, spirit. We'll get to our minds in a minute. You know, our offering of ourselves as a living sacrifice is to be total. Paul emphasizes body is not, not because it's the only thing, but because it's not just our hearts. Right? It is our hearts, but it's our bodies and souls and spirit and mind and everything. As the hymn puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Secondly, Paul says, a living sacrifice is to be reasonable. The English translations here like to translate this phrase as spiritual worship, but the Greek words are the words for logical and service. So rather than spiritual worship, which is fine translation, but the kind of verbatim translation might be logical service. That is to say, serving God by offering ourselves as living sacrifice is the logical, reasonable thing to do. Tim Keller notes that once you have a good view of God's mercies, anything less than a total, complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. Partial giving of ourselves to God is unreasonable. Like we might say, oh God, you can have every part of my life but you know, fill in the blank. You know, every, every part of my life, but my job. Every part of my life, but my money. Every part of my life, but my sex life. Every part of my life, but my family or my addiction or whatever. You can have every part, but blank. That's unreasonable. Second century philosopher Epictetus wrote this. He said, if I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan. I'm not sure why he picked birds as an example, but as kind of a wannabe bird nerd, I'm here for it. I love it. But he says, in fact, I'm a logikos, a rational being. So I must praise God. I am a rational being. Therefore, I must praise God. We were created to worship. As rational beings, we must praise God. It's logical. Indeed, maybe the most rational thing that we can do. And thirdly, a living sacrifice is ongoing. Ongoing. D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, the problem with the living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. The other day in a text strand with one of our elders, Pastor Josh remarked that uh, he and I were on summer project with crew in Tokyo, and we had heard each other's testimony, our little three-minute testimony that we shared over and over again. We'd heard it so many times that we could say them for each other like verbatim. And no, that was like 25 years ago, so most of this is lost to history. But he recalled one line where I was describing uh, my kind of erroneous view of, of coming to faith, where I said, I just I prayed a prayer to Jesus, and that was that, done deal. And for whatever reason, that line stuck out to Josh. That was that, done deal. 
But that erroneous view of, of commitment to Jesus, a one-time, you know, done deal thing, is kind of refuted by Paul's metaphor here as a living sacrifice. You know, in a sense, yes, our crossover from death to life when we come to faith in Jesus is a, a done deal. But then Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To be a living sacrifice is a daily, moment-by-moment struggle to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, crawling back onto the altar, so to say, over and over and over again, day by day, moment by moment. One interesting thing here to note is that this is not just an individual endeavor. Paul uses some peculiar grammar here, um, something that I might question if I was proofreading one of my kids' papers. He, He says, bodies, plural, and then living sacrifice, singular. You would think they would either both be singular or both be plural, but he says, bodies, plural, offer your bodies, all of you offer your bodies for a living sacrifice. Paul seems to be saying that we as individuals offer each of our bodies to Jesus, and in so doing, we are the body, the one body of Christ. Maybe a bit like Voltron, if you're old enough to remember that cartoon. But this is a setup for the body imagery that Paul gets into later here in Romans 12, which Josh will get into next week. Many parts making up one body. Our individual offering of our body as a collective living sacrifice of worship for God becomes something more, becomes what it's meant to be when we are together. That is, God's not looking for uh, and making just individual worshipers, but rather a worshiping community offer our bodies individually as a living sacrifice together. So we'll give John Stott the last word for this section. It's kind of long, but John Stott's always worth it. He says this, Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity back in chapter 3, verses 13 and following, that it reveals itself through our bodies. The human depravity reveals itself through our bodies. In tongues, which practice deceit, in lips, which spread poison, in mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, in feet which are swift to shed blood, and in eyes which look away from God. So we are to offer the different parts of our bodies not to sin as instruments of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning, typing and mending, Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. Our eyes will look humbly and patiently toward God. Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And then in verse 2, Paul says, Don't do this, rather do this. Don't be conformed, be transformed. We aren't just thinking things, brains on a stick, as James Smith says, but hungering and thirsting creatures. That's probably why Paul tells us to present our bodies first, and then he talks about the mind. It's not either or. We're not just thinking things, and we're not just bodies either. Paul urges us to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. This can range from, like, the silly. For example, I was listening to one pastor this week uh, talking about the changing patterns of the world regarding fashion. When he and I were kids, the last thing you'd ever be want to caught dead in were, like, footy socks you know, ones that, like, you couldn't see? They usually had, like, pom-poms on the back. You know, like, invisible socks. Um, 
But now, right, the socks we were supposed to have were like the big, tall, white tube socks, preferably with the stripes across the top. But now it's exactly the opposite, right? Like everybody has the, you know, you can't see your socks. It should be like invisible. And if you wear those, I don't know, does anybody wear those big, tall tube socks with the stripes on them? That's ridiculous. You know, you wouldn't do that. So fashion, it's kind of a silly example, but the fashion changes, right? There's also stuff that changes that's consequential. Beliefs about human life, marriage, sexuality, what we should do with our money, what our responsibilities are to those around us, how we treat our enemies. The patterns of the world are often at odds with the ways of Jesus. One of my favorite renderings of this passage is from J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. He says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's what it feels like sometimes, doesn't it? Whether it's what kind of socks you're supposed to be wearing or, or what view of marriage or sexuality you're supposed to have and be endorsing today. The world has a mold and it's trying to squeeze you into it. Paul says, don't be conformed to it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Well, how does this happen? Well, a good portion of it, in fact, most of it probably happens by osmosis, not intentionally, right? It's not deliberate, it just seeps in. One book that I read this year said it this way. It says, we become the stories that we consume. We don't just watch stories, we live in one. For whatever reason, I got got thinking about the movie, A Christmas Story this week. You know the one, Ralphie with his official Red Ryder Carbine Action 200 shot range model air rifle. I've seen this movie, I mean, dozens of times, dozens of times, every year for years, right? And I got thinking, like, what does that do to someone's heart and mind to watch something over and over? The sheer quantity of hours I have spent watching this movie, right? It's got to be formative. Now, we could probably argue that A Christmas Story is pretty innocuous when it comes to influencing us or squeezing us into the patterns of the world. But it's a, it's a good example because as Pastor Ken Hughes warns, we must be careful what we read and watch. We must not fear to challenge others' presuppositions. Above all, we must not be afraid to be different. What sheer quantity of stuff are we consuming and engaging with that is squeezing us into the mold of the world? You know, conforming us to the patterns of the world. What books are we reading? Movies are we watching? Music that we're listening to, TV shows, blogs, not to mention social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. How much time are we spending on it, letting it squeeze us into the mold of the world? Paul says, don't be squeezed into the mold, but rather be transformed. Don't be conformed, be transformed. There's some more grammar and nerdery here. This word transformed is in the passive imperative. That is, it must happen. You have to be transformed, but we can't manufacture it ourselves. And so a transformation happens to us, with us, and in us, but with the Spirit's help. And the word is one you might recognize in English. It's metamorphose. It's our word metamorphosis, the process of transforming it from immature to mature. You know, like a little hungry caterpillar goes on its Eden binge, and then he's metamorphosized into a beautiful butterfly, from caterpillar to butterfly. That is what we're supposed to be doing as an alternative to being conformed to the patterns of this world. That's the Christian life. Interestingly, at least it's interesting to me, this word is only used twice in the Gospels and then one other time in the New Testament. In the Gospels, it's used to describe what happens to Jesus in what we call the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on the mountain with a few of his closest followers, and he's metamorphosized, the same word, 
transfigured, transformed before them. It says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. So that's the only time it shows up in the Gospels. The only other time it shows up in the New Testament is when Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. We're being metamorphosized into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What we're talking about here is, as John Stott says, a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. What Paul is urging us to do is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, a transformation as significant as when Jesus, when his face was shown with the glory of God and his clothes became like light. A transformation as Christians is as dramatic as a caterpillar to a butterfly. Well, how we might ask, does this even happen? Oh, we're transformed, Paul says, by the renewal of our minds. He uses the same phrase in Ephesians 4 as a synonym for putting off our old selves and putting on the new self in Christ. So renewing our minds is not just that we think true thoughts. It is that, right? Paul says to do that in Philippians, like where he says, dwell on whatever is true and right and lovely and honorable and so on. But really, he's talking about the governing influence of our mind being reoriented, In today's lingo, we might say that the renewal of our minds is having our imagination captured by Christ. That is who Jesus is and what he did fuels our imagination and is the primary factor shaping all of our thoughts and actions. How does this happen? It happens through habits, crawling back on the altar, offering ourselves as living sacrifices weekly, daily, moment to moment. A lot of these habits have been called the means of grace. And that's just kind of a fancy way of saying that these are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to empower us and equip us to experience Jesus in the life of redemption. So what are the means of grace? Here's a few, just a few quick hits. First is worship. Come on Sundays and worship. You're doing it right now. It means come and worship in spirit and truth with your mind and your body and your heart. Or worship on Sunday has an order that is both expressive and formative. Worship is not, uh, worship's not like a concert or a lecture. Right? It's more, mostly like a feast. At a concert or a lecture, you listen, you observe, but at a feast, right, you participate. You're filled. You likely bring something to share. And we have times in our worship to express to God what we feel, engaging our hearts and our emotions. That should happen. We ought to be moved on Sunday mornings. But our worship is not just telling God how we feel, but it also forms us into who we ought to be and how we ought to live. Times of confession and and prayer and teaching. You know, we might say that our worship on Sunday morning is an alternative mold to the one that the world is trying to squeeze us into. It's counter-formation. Listen to what Jamie Smith says about our worship gatherings. He calls worship the imagination station. We become what we worship because what we worship is what we love. The practices of Christian worship train our love. They are practiced for the coming kingdom, habituating us as citizens of the kingdom of God. Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. We can't counter the power of cultural liturgies with didactic information poured into our intellects. We can't recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits 
of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. That's why we gather as a worshiping community every Sunday. Setting aside the Lord's day is holy. That's how we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. And a part of our worship gathering around is, there, is gathering around the table for the Lord's Supper. It's a real feast, a foretaste of the heavenly banquet when the kingdom comes in all its fullness. As Pastor Josh often says, we come to this first meal on the first day of the week so that it shapes all the rest of the meals of our week and all the rest of our doings. In the Lord's Supper, we're nourished spiritually. We grow in grace. We have our union and communion with Christ confirmed. We renew our thankfulness. We commune with one another as members of one body. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Also, the Bible reading and prayer. And we try to help you do this by printing our readings and prayers in the bulletin each week. So you can follow along every day. You can also find them on Church Center. Vincent Wilson is, has helped us and is helping us keep a website going where you can read and listen to the daily readings linked right there from Church Center. You know, but kind of like watching your favorite Christmas movie every year, we come back to the scriptures every day and we pray so that we can experience the renewing of our mind, the transformation that God has for us. The Bible and prayer are means of grace. And then we also make a habit of meeting with other Christians. The main way we do that here is through community groups, which just launched. It's not too late to get in on those. It also happens through happy hours and breakfasts and dinners and Bible studies and book clubs or anytime we get together. One of my favorite descriptions of what happens when we get together is from Hebrews 10, where it says, we stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another. I love that. We stir one another up, spur one another on towards love and good works, co-conspirators in the renewal of our minds and transformation. So there's more to be sure, but these things, uh, if we do these things, we can watch the spirit work in our lives. If you've got your New City Bingo card, get ready. Here comes the C.S. Lewis quote. In the voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Eustace was the cousin of the Pevensey children, and uh, not exactly what you might call likable. Uh, He was insufferable. But he ends up on an adventure with Susan, Peter, and Edmund, and Lucy in Narnia, aboard the Dawn Treader with Prince Caspian and Reepicheep and all the rest of them. Uh, and with the dawn treader marooned on an island, Eustace wanders off, stumbles upon a dragon's treasure, and uh, with a decrepit old dying dragon laying there, he falls asleep on the pile of gold and uh, turns into a dragon. Lewis writes, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with a greedy dragon heart, he had become a dragon himself. He discovers that he's a dragon, uh, begins to realize what an idiot he's been. He tries to figure out how to communicate to everyone that He's the dragon, and so on and so forth. And eventually he has an encounter with Aslan, the Jesus figure in the books. It's, a, um, I think, a good picture of a living sacrifice. So if you'll bear with me, it's a story time from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Eustace is talking to Edmund. He says, I won't tell you how I became a dragon. I can tell the others uh, and get it all over with at once. Um, he says, by the way, I didn't even know it was a dragon until I heard you all using the word when I turned up there the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. He says, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer. I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it. 
if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight in my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but it wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke, said Edmund? Well, I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same, and I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up and I followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and round the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before. And on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when suddenly I thought that dragons are are snaky sort of things, and snakes can cast their skin. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again. And underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped out and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bathe. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on, and threw me into the water. What smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and soon I started swimming and splashing. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they're no muscle and pretty moldy compared with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, they're the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another. What do you think it was then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan. 
said Edmund. Aslan, said Eustace. I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Dawn Treader, and I felt, I don't know what, I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. Well, that's all right, said Edmund. Between ourselves, you haven't been as bad as I was on my first trip to Narnia. You were only an ass, but I was a traitor. (coughs) Pardon me. May we offer ourselves. May we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Jesus, just as Eustace did to Aslan, even this morning, even as we come to feast on his body broken and sacrificed for us and his blood poured out for us, so that we can live that life that is truly life. Let's pray. Excuse me. Father, you are good and kind and merciful and patient. You don't treat us as our sins deserve, but as we read in Romans, at just the right time, you died for us while we were still sinners and enemies. (coughs) In view of your innumerable mercies, give us the wisdom and strength to weekly, daily, even moment by moment, offer our bodies, our hearts, souls, minds, and all of our strength to you as a living sacrifice. Transform us into a people that shines the beauty of Jesus. (coughs) Protect us from being conformed to the patterns of this world. Give us strength and wisdom to develop practices that fight against us getting squeezed into the mold of the world. And as we offer ourselves to you, pray that you would make us into a church that displays a beautiful orthodoxy church body in which we are remembered, put back together, built up even stronger. And like John Stott said, a a church where our feet walk in Jesus's paths, where our lips speak the truth, spread the gospel, a church where our words build up, bring life and healing, where our hands lift up those who have fallen, a church where our arms embrace the lonely and the unloved, where our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, in a church in which our eyes are ever looking humbly and patiently towards you. May it be so. And now we pray together as Jesus taught us, praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from yours, the kingdom, power, and glory forever. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.